sermon for this morning comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. But the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, His disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in 1992, there was a young ex-governor from Arkansas named Bill Clinton, And Bill Clinton was running against the older President Bush. Now, the problem was that in 1992, President Bush had a popularity rating of about 90%. He had just taken the country through the Persian Gulf War and was an incredibly popular president. And so Bill Clinton was looking for a winning strategy. Now, the 12 months prior to the election, the economy began to tank. And there was a political strategist on Clinton's team named James Carville. And James Carville came up with a slogan. Now, it was actually intended just for the the staff, Clinton's staff, on the election. But it became so iconic that it became the campaign slogan for the campaign. And some of you already know what it is. What is it? It's the economy, stupid. Right? It's the economy, stupid. And with that slogan, Clinton went on to win the campaign several months later. Now, why do I mention that at the beginning of passage about defilement of the washing of hands? Well, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here is it's the heart, stupid. 
right? And you're saying, no, Jesus wouldn't say stupid. Well, he kind of does in verse 18, right? right? I mean, let's be honest. And this is not the only time, by the way, where he does that, where he says, you guys are so thick-headed and dense. Do you not understand? It's the heart stupid. Now, be that as it may, we're going to at least say this, that what Jesus says here, it's all about the heart. And it always has been. This is not something new to Jesus. This is something that's always been there. In fact, if you, if you look back at the Old Testament, prophet Ezekiel in chapter 11, verse 19, this is the, the word of the Lord, or the words of the Lord. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone for, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And so when Jesus comes along, Jesus is not doing something new. Jesus is reinforcing what was already there. That is, he is the shepherd of the heart. That what God wants more than anything else is our hearts. And, and I think we actually get this as well. I mean, for those of us who are parents, let me ask you this question, all right? All right, you, you, got, you got to make a decision here, and, and you better choose wisely here, all right? If you had a choice, you had to prioritize one thing, would you prioritize right behavior or a right heart? All right, think about that for a second. I mean, it's so easy. Like, we want behavior, right behavior, because it helps our lives if they're behaving properly. But isn't it better, isn't it better to have their heart first? And actually, behavior might follow if you have the heart first. We know that. We get things out of order. And that's the whole reason why I want to begin there. As I want to suggest here, and this will be the first of the three points, is this saying, man, we get things out of order. We pursue the wrong things. But the good news is that God pursues the right things. He pursues the heart. And we're going to finish this sermon by asking the question, how do we get there? So let's jump in with the first thing here. And that is, what is it that we pursue? We're going to see that through the lens of these religious leaders who sound in some ways a lot like ourselves. And so look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So Jesus has blown up. He's a big time thing right now. And so the, the Grand Poobah from Jerusalem is like, okay, we're sending a crack team uh, to where Jesus is because we want to see if we can crack him, right? And so they're looking for, for any violation, any violation, and they think they have it. They think they have it because his disciples are not washing their hands before they're eating. Now, I know some of you are germaphobes in here, right? And some of you are saying, that should be a law. Like, what's the problem here, Scott? <laughs> right? But this is not about Western modern hygiene. This is about ritual, religious ritual. And the key to understanding that actually comes in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? According to the tradition. See, here's the key. Notice that the, uh, the scribes, the religious leaders, they didn't say, whoa, 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 Jesus, do you know that they're violating one of the Ten Commandments? Do you know they're playing golf on Sunday morning? Have you, have you, have you seen that? They've been binge-watching Yellowstone on Sunday morning instead of being in the house of worship. Now, if that had happened, Jesus would have been like, oh, wait, thanks, guys. That, that is a, that's a big deal. Je- you know, God did say something about that. He did say about that, keep the Sabbath holy. I'll take care of that. No, that's not what's happening here. Instead, it's the tradition of the elders. What does that mean? Well, after God gives to the Israelites, his people, both the Ten Commandments, as well as all these other rules after that, these, these uh, religious laws, all right, the scribes, or really at their equivalent or whatever they would have been called hundreds of years before Jesus, they come along and they begin to add to that. 
And so it's not just enough to use the example, for instance, of the Sabbath. It's not just enough to keep the Sabbath holy. But then they began to add all these other regulations, what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot cook. All right, don't, don't pick up that ladle. All right, that's working on the Sabbath and these, all these other different traditions. And so what's at stake here is not God's word. That's really important to see. Jesus is not against tradition here, okay? And and let me show you what is at stake here. It's from Exodus chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. So this is what actually the law actually was about. When they go into the tent of meeting, this is the priest, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Now, why does God give that as a rule? And the answer is that the priests represent the people of God. And and as such, they represent uncleanliness. And so if they're going to go into the temple of God, the presence of God, and who is God? God is holy. God is clean. And so these, these very, very prosaic and basic uh, regulations were meant to reflect something spiritually that's true. And it's pointing to something in the future. More on that here to come in a second. But, but at its, its core, uh, God gives these, these regulations, these laws, as a way to reflect his character and, and what we need. But what had happened was this. That they'd added to that. And so the scribes come along and they say, well, no longer is it just about the priest doing that. All people now need to, to wash their hands, right? And, and not only that, we're going to wash our cups. We're going to, we're going to wash our, our dining couches. I know some of you are saying, what is a dining couch? Like, I have no idea, by the way, uh, other than it's probably, you know, you know, you're eating your TV dinner there in front of the TV. Maybe that's the dining couch. But they were, they were uh, ruthless with their cleaning like they were constantly buying cleaning products and cleaning everything uh, before they go home. One of the things that you may have heard there, I guess it was verse 3 or verse 4, where it says that when they would come from the marketplace, they would clean themselves. Well, that was also an addition that Mark is kind of pointing out here. So if you as much as brushed up against a Gentile, what you had to do is you had to go home and you had to burn your clothes and then take a, a bath. And you could not go back to the temple. You could not go and worship God. Until you had done those things. Like, don't get near me, Gentile. Like, and, and so all these regulations, they're supposed to be the light to the nations, to light to the Gentiles. Instead, they're doing the Heisman stance with the Gentiles, okay? And so much so that, that you defile me. Don't even, I, don't, I can't even brush up near you. And so the scribes are adding this. They're making this onerous pursuing God. They're making it enslaving. And so Jesus is not against tradition. I want you to know, traditions are good things. We were talking about that as staff this week. And we have traditions here, right? Liturgy of the community. Learn that from another pastor who's here today. And we have right back there a coffee bar. Can you imagine if I got rid of that coffee bar? You guys would bring me up on charges probably. You probably would stone me. Like, but we have, we have other traditions here. Like, for instance, we start the service at 10 a.m., not 10.10. Low blow, Scott. Low blow. Yes, I know. I just had to take advantage of it. You're saying, well, that's my tradition. 1010. Uh, right. Sort of thing like that. But we have traditions. Some traditions are not as good as others, mind you. But we all have traditions. Jesus is not against tradition. What's the key here? When tradition becomes law, and it's equal to the authority of God. 
That's what's at stake, and it's why we get to verses 6 through 8. The real issue here, listen to what he says. And he said to them, so this is his response. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There's the key. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In other words, you've elevated what you think is important to your life. And let's be honest, for them, it meant keeping control, maintaining control. We don't like freedom, do we? In the places of freedom, we like to create control mechanisms. And that certainly is what's happening here. And religion, when it's at its worst, does exactly that. And, and, uh, but, but listen, let's not just point fingers at the scribes. Let's point fingers at ourselves for a second. Because the real issue here is motivation. I'll tell you that, you know, I do a lot of cooking in our home. And, and so there's this kind of this unwritten rule, at least in my heart, that if I do a lot of the cooking, someone else should do a lot of the cleaning of the dishes. Now, I'm looking at my children right now, and uh, I'm saying, you know, that doesn't always happen. And, uh, or uh, sometimes I'll find myself, I'll, I'll let Kirsten say, hey, I just want you to know I did the dishes. Now, am I telling Kirsten that as a, as a sign of my love and my pledge and my vow that I took 23 years ago? I love you, honey. No. I was like, I want you to notice. And, I, you know, it's almost like a, I have a credit now, you know, because I've done something that in the unwritten, unspoken rules we talk, we laugh a lot about this, by the way, all the unwritten rules that we have for each other, the expectations, that sort of thing like that. But all of us in here have distorted motivations for doing things. Brandon Manning is, is one of my favorite writers. He was a renegade Catholic priest. I say renegade because you're not supposed to get married, and he did. Uh, and so uh, he, he was a renegade Catholic priest, and his ministry was in New Orleans. And, but just a, a remarkable, he died a few years ago, but one of my favorite books of all time is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. It's in my top 10 favorite books of all time. And I want to read to you a quote where he tells it himself. And I think it's so telling because it says so much about us. He says this, the noonday devil of the Christian life is the temptation to lose the inner self while preserving the shell of edifying behavior. Suddenly I, I discover that I'm ministering to AIDS victims to enhance my resume. I find I renounced ice cream for Lent to lose five excess pounds. I drop hints about the absolute priority of meditation and contemplation to create the impression that I am a man of prayer. At some unremembered moment, I have lost the connection between internal purity of heart and external works of piety. In the most humiliating sense of the word, I have become a legalist. I have fallen victim to what T.S. Eliot calls the greatest sin, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I think it is so dangerous because it looks so good to so many people. And yet our hearts are far from God. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And the ultimate version of that is the hypocrisy that he mentions here. So I'm not going to reread verses 9 through 12, but he mentions this thing called Corbin. Most of you are probably like, I have no idea what Corbin means, right? Well, Corbin was this declaration. It was a vow that you made before God. is to say, I declare this Corbin. Now, typically that meant something financial. And so back then it could have been a piece of property. And the reason why Jesus is ticked off, and please underline, he is ticked off. And the reason why is because in a traditional family culture where there is no Medicare, there is no Medicaid, 
when you are aging in years, you look to your children for survival. And what was happening was were that were, were children were declaring property Corbin, which meant it was devoted to God and it could not be used by you for any other reason. And let's be honest, uh, the scribes wanted to enforce Corbin because when you die, guess, guess who got the property? The temple, right? And so this is part of what's going on here. And Jesus is ticked off. Jesus is ticked off because basically someone has made a rash vow and the whole system of honoring the parents, which is one of the Ten Commandments, honoring your parents is being abused because of a tradition of men, because that tradition has become authoritative. In fact, it's not just become equal, it's become greater in authority than the Word of God. This is why Jesus is so mad. This is why he calls them hypocrites. Another place, he calls them whitewashed sepulchers. Beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. They're gunning for Jesus, have been. Boy, are they ever now. So much for gentle Jesus, right? You know? And so, so he is calling them out. That's why into verse 13 he says, oh, this is just tip of the iceberg, by the way. There's so many other ways and things that you do to lead people away from the heart of God and towards your own power and pleasure. Jesus knows, as he's going to do here in a second, Jesus knows that what we need today is the same thing that they needed 2,000 years ago. Occasionally I'll be asked a question Scott, what do you think is the most important theological issue? Or what's the most important issue to the church today? Now, you may be thinking that I might say something like this. Gender. Sexuality. But I want to suggest to you that that's a surface issue. What do you mean, Scott? The most important issue today is the same issue that Jesus is getting back at 2,000 years ago. It is the authority of the Word of God. That is the most important issue that will never change, by the way. I really believe that. That what's at stake always is who's in authority. Who has the right to speak into my life? And the same thing that the religious leaders were doing, although polished and on the outside, we do the same thing today. It's called syncretism. And so we, we take a little bit of this, we take a little bit of that. So there are plenty of people who would never darken the door of a church on a sunny morning. If you ask them, what do you think about Jesus? They say, oh, Jesus He's my jam. I like that guy. He's got a lot of good things to say about justice. He's got a lot of good things to say about the poor, disenfranchised. Love that. Yeah, well, he said a lot of other things too. Well, I don't know about some of those other things, but I really like him on this topic. Man, let him preach on that. What have we done? We've said, man, in the places where I feel uncomfortable, the places where I feel offended, don't talk to me about that. And let me tell you, there's no authority there. You're creating a Jesus in your image. Listen, how do you know you're getting close, close to the reality because it begins to offend you? A few days ago, I was at Covenant College with Karis. So, so I'm very excited about this. Uh, Karis is going to Covenant College in the fall. And uh, that's uh, our flagship university for our denomination. Really excited uh, about this. Our lives are about to change. I've already been crying, just so you know, months in advance about that. But I'm really excited for Karis. And so it was called Admitted Students Day. And so it was like 24 hours where you go on campus and you kind of explore more about what it means to be a student at there. And so she wanted to go to one of the classes. We went to an intro to psychology class. 
And in the intro to psychology class, we're like the three visitors in the room. And the professor notes us and says, welcome visitors. And he says, now this is a special day because... Because today, everyone in here gets to practice persuasion. So this is a psychology class. In particular, they're focused on social psychology and the art of persuasion. And they said, to the visitors, we would love for you to participate in this. I'm like, okay. And so he handed us an index card. And he says, now I'm putting seven topics up on the screen. You get to choose one of them. And the one that we chose was this. Missionaries should bring the gospel to bear in other cultures, even if it causes offense. And so uh, he goes around, and we're running out of time. I'm thinking, okay, he's not going to call on the visitors. So we're visitors. What do we, we're, we don't get a grade for this or anything like that. But right before the class ends, he looks at us and he says, would you like to present to the class as well? Now, I haven't been in a college classroom in 30 years. And, uh, and so my teammates, Kirsten and Karis, look at me and say, hey, why don't you go up front and present? And the class begins to egg me on. So... I go up front, you know, and I present my, my, my reasons for why missionaries, and I define missionaries, not someone who goes overseas. It's all of us. Anyone who, who believes in the good news of Jesus is a missionary, a sent one. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? And so I, I make that, well, no one wanted to take the 51-year-old on because that's what you do. You're supposed to kind of go back and forth and argue, and, and they're like, no, no, I'm not interested in that. But it also helped the fact that I was at a Christian college where most of them believed in my argument anyway. So the professor takes me on. And he says, and he even told us, he said, I don't even really believe my arguments, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. And so he, he says, who are you as a colonizer to impose your beliefs? They're offensive. And I, in this mock debate, retorted. I said, well, isn't that also an imposition of your own ideology? Right? And so we went back and forth. I was like, ha-ha, you know, that kind of thing like that. Um, and, and then I said this. I said, I said, all of us are seeking to persuade other people. And, and we all will offend at some point. And I, I, I believe that, 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 that how do you know you're getting close to the heart of God? You, you know you're getting close to the heart of God because he offends you. Because you find things in your life that you're saying, man, I, uh, I don't like it when he speaks to this. And I want to say to you this, lean in there. Lean into those places where you begin to feel offended. And ask yourself this question, why does it offend me? Lean into his authority in your life at that point. But I wanted to really, um, you're saying, man. Was the first point. How long are we going to be here today? Well, these next two points go a lot faster, okay? But I want us to lean in now and say, what is it that God desires? What's he looking for? You know, as I said earlier, it can be very tempting to think that what God wants in a religious community is compliance. And let, me, let me tell you, that is not what he wants. And not just because of Jesus, but remember what I said about the Old Testament. I mean, who do we see an example of that also in? David. Remember Psalm 51? Remember, this is adultery, and, and what has he done? He's, he's committed adultery, and, and David says to himself, oh, God's not looking for formal compliance here. He says, create in me a clean what? Heart. And then in verses 16 to 17, says this, For you will, not, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. What is it that God wants more than anything else from you and from me? Intimacy. He wants us. He wants our hearts. The heart for the Hebrews was the center of the being, the center of identity. It was the core. For out of the heart came everything else. And, and so 
What do we do in a place like that? We adjust our lives so that our heart aligns with His. You know, if, if, if you've ever experienced romance, and most of you have in here, if you've ever experienced romance, what do you do in a place of romance? You do research. So what do you mean you do research? Sounds creepy. No, no, no. Yeah, I don't mean it by that. Like go to your Facebook feed, their Facebook feed or Instagram. But you begin to maybe, maybe ask questions of their friends. Hey, what do they like more than anything else? What, what is it that excites them? What delights them? And also, what do they not like? I want to steer clear of things that they don't like as well. Like that, that's where you, what you're doing is you're, you're aligning your life. You're adjusting your life. Not because, oh, gee, I, I better do this, right, so I can have a boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that. No, you do it out of love. You do it because you naturally want to please them. You naturally want to delight in them, to enjoy them. And what, what Jesus is saying, and I think he must have also at some level also had compassion and pity upon them, at least at different times he did. Certainly he did on some members of the Pharisees like Nicodemus. We said, man, your heart is so far from God. You're missing out on what God wants more than anything else. Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian philosopher, said this, purity of heart is to will one thing. And what is that one thing? Their hearts would be aligned with his. You know, this past Sunday we had our annual vision dinner, and this one was unique because we we laid out a, a vision for the next several years to come. And the reality is we ran out of time. <laughs> we, there wasn't nearly enough time to jump in and talk about the things that we really want to talk about. If you remember, though, I said when I spoke at the very end, I said, look, none of this stuff matters. The things that were, that were rolling out, new initiatives, new desires, none of this stuff matters if our hearts don't abide with Jesus. Remember when I said that? I want you to remember that in the months and the years to come. Nothing matters about what we're going to roll out here as a church. Nothing matters if our hearts are not aligned with his abiding, John 15. And so a question I want to ask you is, is that what you want? Because this is what God wants here. He wants our, our hearts to abide with him. But, but, but Jesus finishes in a very unique place in this passage. After everything that he says, he gets right to the pun intended, the heart of the matter. Because what he says there in response to uh, the scribes in verses 14 through 18, he says, look, it's not about what goes into the body. No longer is it about uh, the regulations of hygiene. Now he's talking about food. And, he's, you know, back then you had all these different foods that you were allowed to eat. You're not allowed to eat. Uh, certain foods re- represent holiness. Certain foods didn't. And he says, it's not about any of that. But it's about what he says in verses 20 through 23. This is where he ends. He says, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I don't want to say a whole lot more because you just heard what I said a few minutes ago in the family moment about the shooting in Nashville. But I I want to say this, that that what what I saw in response to the shooting is what I've seen after every shooting and after every tragedy, it seems like, at least tragedies that seem to, to be because of the hands of human beings. And we so quickly turn to behavior and what can we change? What laws can we change? And there's a place for that. And I know we all have different viewpoints on on what some of those responses and changes should be. Those are good and fine, but they're secondary. They're secondary to what? The heart. 
I just have been reflecting this week uh, about the hearts of people. But why do we find ourselves as human beings once again ad nauseum in the same story, day in and day out of sorrow? You know, and and I just I feel like as a, as a, both as a nation, but sometimes even with the Christian church. Let's be honest. Sometimes we miss the heart of the matter. We miss that that Jesus came on a rescue mission. Reed was talking about in the children's sermon. That Jesus came on a rescue mission to change first us from the inside out. We often revert. We put the cart before the horse. We want to change the outside and in. That's what religion does. Whether it's religion with a capital R or it's small r religion, secular religion. We all do the same thing. We want to change from the outside and think that somehow that will change our character on the inside. And Jesus says, you got it backwards. It can't happen. The heart has to be changed, which leads to the last thing here. And that is, how do we get there? How do we see our hearts changed? You know, I just said what I did about religion. Religion often is about trying to make ourselves clean, right? It, we, we screw up. We go, oh, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to give more in the offering plate. Like, we try to make ourselves clean. By the way, the secular version of that, I think today's virtue signaling. Like, it, you know, I'm going to wear a shirt that says, I'm not a racist. Right? I'm thinking, why do you have to point that out? Right? Uh, that, that you're on yourself maybe here. I don't know. Be that as it may. Well, we, we, we try to, to position ourselves as saying, I'm a good person. It's a secular version of the same problem we have as religious people. We try to make ourselves clean. And Jesus comes along and says, it's not about making yourself clean. I have to make you clean. And listen, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I didn't come to wash your hands. I came to wash your heart. And, and religion won't get you there. Secularism won't get you there. Only I can get you there in the way that I will wash you. And here's what's fascinating. There's almost a throwaway line there, verse 19. Because after Jesus says what he does about the foods coming in there, in a parenthetical statement, did you see it? It says this from Mark. Mark says, and he declared all foods clean. And you say, what, what would that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with, with the gospel? Because all those good laws in the Old Testament were not about saving us, nor saving the people of Israel back then but is pointing to the need for salvation. The washing of the hands is pointing for the priest to the need for cleansing for a final priest to come along, a final atonement to come along. And so when Mark says he was declaring now all foods clean, what was he saying? He was saying in Jesus it's all been fulfilled. No longer is it about traditions. No longer it is about even the good laws. Jesus says, look to me. Matthew 22, another scribe tries to entrap Jesus. Teacher, what's the greatest law? There's 600 plus. Uh huh. Which one are you going to say? Because it's probably not going to be the right answer. And Jesus brilliantly says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like the first, love your neighbors yourself. He says love. Love vertically and then love horizontally. And what do you see in Jesus? He goes to the cross. And having loved vertically, he loves us horizontally. And he washes us with his blood. That is love. And it's the heart of our lives. It may be the heart of your life here in the city, in the midst of a really tough time right now. 
May it be that your heart has been set on fire by Jesus to love the nations, to love your enemy, and to know that he has made you clean, not on account of your behavior, but on account of his on your behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, we desperately need